Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Steve Mills, founder of Decision House. What does the cost of living crisis mean for attractions as we move into winter and beyond? Steve gives us a snapshot of how your potential visitors are feeling and what the next few months might hold for the sector. If you like what you hear, subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. We had a small issue with Steve's audio, but don't let that detract from the important content. This is a really, really important episode. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on Skip the Queue podcast today. It's really good to see you. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Kelly. I've got a few icebreaker questions for you, Steve. Go for it. You can only save one of the Muppets. Which Muppet do you choose and why? Oh, my God. Well, I'll tell you the one I'd like to be. I'd like to be the drummer, Animal. Yeah. Aspiring to be fun and exciting and a bit off the wall, really, to be honest. But I, th- I would say very much it's an aspiration rather than reality. With this. <laughs> um, I'm probably more like the uh, Hooter, who's the more rational, down-to-earth, logical I think that might come across in what we talk about today, Steve. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. No, that's, that's, that's definitely it for me. All right. How would you describe your job to a two-year-old? I find out all the fun stuff that people like doing. That's a great answer. <laughs> that is a great answer. You nailed that, Steve. Good. Okay. Last show that you binged watched on your television viewing platform of choice. I feel like the BBC, I don't know why I've done that. I'm not the BBC. No one cares what I say. No, no, Netflix, it's all right. Amazon, um, whatever. Disney Plus. Well, I'm, I'm quite sporty. So Disney Plus, I've, I've been watching this series called Welcome to Wrexham, which is all about Wrexham Football Club and the fact that Ryan Reynolds and oh, the other guy whose name everybody always forgets, Jim, Joe, McElhenney or whatever it is, taken over non-league football club and it's a kind of a, a fly on the wall a documentary about uh, how they've taken over the club and trying to make a success of it. But very interestingly, there's lots of these fly-on-the-wall type documentaries, and this one is made for an American audience. It has some quite subtle differences in there. So they have things like translations between um, English and American phrases for things like, you know, bloke means buddy, and that kind of thing as well. So it's, it's got a little twist in it, which I quite enjoy. That's interesting. So that's on my list to watch that one. Um, but we've watched like some of the like we watched the Tottenham one that was on Amazon because we're big Tottenham fans. And we watched what was the one that was it Sunderland? Was yeah. there one about? Yeah, we watched that one as well. That was really good. Yes. So the, Oh, that would be OK. So we watched that one and there's like little subtle differences because it's for Americans. Yes. All right, Steve, what is your unpopular opinion? Um, I thought that's an interesting first question because given my profession, which we'll come on to, it's kind of my job's really about conveying others' opinions rather than having them of my own, to be honest with you. But my unpopular opinion, and that's sticking with the sporting thing, really, is that I think that there's no better sporting drama than a five-day cricket test match, oh, <laughs> which is definitely an unpopular opinion, to be honest, or even like a four-day cricket county championship match that's watched by three men and a dog on a wet Tuesday in April, to be honest, because I know it's difficult to believe that anyone could be interested in a sport where you can have a a draw after five days' worth of activity. But for me, it's kind of like reading a novel, but it's being played out in front of your eyes in many ways. So 
there's time to get to know all the characters properly and the story kind of ebbs and flows and you get these unexpected incidents happening that change the plot and you have you can see these individual battles gradually unfolding during five days that you'd never get in a kind of couple of hours. And what I like about it is it's a kind of test of character and a test of patience for the players, not just the audience, um, as well as kind of just pure sporting ability. So, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's a very unpopular opinion, but I think it's a kind of antidote to where we're going as a society generally. So it's the whole antidote to having low attention span, these kind of quick rewards and these superficial pleasures. If you don't want any of that, go and watch a five-day test match. <laughs> kind of, ironically, I've, I don't think I've ever done, to be honest with you, but it's certainly something I've got in mind when I retire in a few years' time. Steve, it was a really beautiful analogy. I really enjoyed your analogy about it being like a novel and the play, and, you know, playing out the roles and the characters and stuff. But you have not sold it to me. At all. <laughs> I wasn't intended. But, but well done on the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> all right, listeners, let us know what you think about Steve's cricket is a novel analogy, and we should all be watching cricket for five days. I know that I've got a lot of different things that I could be spending five days on, but there you go. <laughs> thank you for sharing That's all right. <laughs> right Steve um I've asked you to come on today because we're going to do a bit of a state of the nation um chat but tell us a little bit about you and what Decision House does for our listeners that haven't heard of you which I'll be surprised if they haven't okay oh thank you yeah so I started Decision House back in 2017 so I used to head up the tourism and culture team at BDRC which is now called BDA BDRC um, so I headed them, those up for a, a good few years before that. So Decision House really kind of specialises in generating insights that help organisations in the culture and tourism sector specifically, and particularly attractions, really, just helping them to make better decisions for their organisation, hence the Ron Seal-type name, Decision House. And we mainly do that by conducting sort of fresh primary research, either with your current customers, so whether you call your current customers visitors or bookers or members, and that helps with making sure that we deliver optimum or that they can deliver optimum experiences for their visitors. Or we do research with prospective com- uh, customers, so more kind of market and audience research to understand how that they can grow their customer base. Actually, so we can do that. We do both on a quantitative. Uh, research, so kind of the typical survey, so online surveys, face-to-face surveys, etc. Or we also do qualitative research as well, so things like focus groups and depth interviews, which really kind of get under the skin of issues that, that organisations have. So typically, quantitative surveys will measure visitor opinion, whereas qualitative kind of gets to the kind of root of why businesses have their those particular opinions. So that, that's really what we do, and. During COVID, we did an awful lot of work with Alba to really kind of track public sentiment. And that led us to setting up visitor benchmarking surveys to, to understand the action to the visitors have to COVID measures being put in place once attractions reopened back in 2020. And that's really both of those surveys, so public sentiment work for Alba and the visitor benchmarking have continued for the last couple of years and still going now, really, albeit they, they've evolved into pieces of work that, that aren't COVID-related anymore. They're, they're kind of more general sort of sentiment work now. 
And, and they've been incredibly valuable, Steve, and I reference them continuously. And I do reference the BVA, BDRC's work as well. And they've been incredibly insightful. It, now, I, I mean, we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about coming on to talk about the, the state of the nation and where people are, because I think what had been happening is I... I've been contacted by a few attractions kind of saying, you know, what what have you heard? You know, uh, numbers are down a little bit. Is there something going, you know, what, what have you heard? What's the sentiment like? And I always kind of fire them your way. But I thought, why not get why not get the man in himself to talk us through where we're at? We've got a really weird situation at the moment in the UK. I mean, we're recording this. It's, it's the 5th of October. Um, so we're in that kind of the run up to what is usually a busy half term. And then the run up to Christmas, which can be quite quiet for for a number of attractions, depending on what, on what you're doing. But we've got the cost of living crisis. We've got the pound was at its lowest since the 70s, which blows my mind. We've had the death of our monarch. We have a new king and a new prime minister all happening at once. I mean, <laughs> that's that's quite it's quite a lot to be dealing with. Um, but I guess. What does all of this mean for attractions as we move into that winter period and beyond? And I thought this is what we could talk about today, Steve. So where are we at? It's a big question, but where are we at? A massive question. I'll try my best to try and pick some of those issues apart, really. So I think if if we deal with the the, the death of Her Majesty the Queen, first of all, and the case that that might be, and this this is, I guess, a personal opinion, first of all, really, I mean, I I think domestically, it's not going to have a huge impact. If I'm perfectly honest, people um, will move on relatively quickly from that. I, I suspect attractions won't see, unless you are a, something that is specifically related to the monarchy, you, you probably won't see a huge amount of difference. I mean, clearly, somewhere like Windsor Castle has already seen queues of people outside the gates, for example. Mm. But I, I think outside of that, that niche, um, domestically, that will see a huge difference. But then... Obviously, internationally, it's raised the profile and actually, I think, showcased all the kind of positive associations that that people abroad associate with the UK and why they travel here. So it's it's emphasised our heritage. It's emphasised our amazing ability in terms of the pomp and ceremony, etc. And it's been a great showcase for, for London sites, to be honest. So I think internationally it should have a significant impact going into next year, allied, of course, with the low value of the pound. That's not all good, obviously, but obviously in pure exchange rate terms, it's a good thing for next, for next year, particularly west-wise. So I guess that's where I'd see um, the monarch situation. It's interesting, like what you said about the, the, the pomp. I mean, it, as we watched the funeral here, a very emotional day actually and I was kind of I was transfixed to the ceremony for the entire you know the entire day it, it was quite mesmerizing but in my head I just kept thinking like people you know outside of the UK that watch this it's it's strange isn't it it's quite strange and it's very grand and it's a real sense of what the UK is about um that kind of that that level of ceremony and people coming together it was it was quite phenomenal and it did make me think this is a it, it ultimately it's a really you know a sad day but it's such a big thing for the UK to to be able to do I wonder you know if that does represent a surge in international tourism because of that and people wanted to come and be a small part in that kind of 
that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I, I think increasingly, whether it's people from the UK or people coming in from the UK, people want to do things now that is different, and they want to do, they want to be seen to be doing things where you, that you can only do in one particular location. And I think the UK, I don't think there is anywhere quite like it in terms of ability to deliver on things like the problems mm. currently. And that's what really sets us apart from many other countries around the world. And I think we shouldn't forget that and not, and not be afraid to promote it. Yeah, absolutely. And then that brings us to the new king. There will be a coronation yeah, at some similar. point. So similar. A similar, similar kind of reaction to that, probably, yeah, yeah. and something yeah, yeah. very positive to celebrate as well. Yeah. But then, yeah, the other side of it is, um, I don't think you mentioned cost of living. Small little issue that we're all struggling with. Probably, yeah, less less positive. So I, I think with that one, as as a lot of listeners will know, so we've been, we were have been commissioned by Alva throughout COVID and then also a couple of waves this year um, just to gauge public sentiment um, into how people are feeling about visitor attractions. So we did a wave back in June um, this year, which kind of first highlighted some financial concerns with the attraction visiting public. And they also said at that point that COVID actually was still a notable barrier, particularly for the older generation and yeah. those who are more vulnerable. We've just literally hot off the press so in, at the end of September. So we did another wave between the 22nd and the 27th of September, just to kind of update that and try to understand how people are feeling about visiting attractions in the autumn and the winter up until about sort of February next year. So mm-hmm. you know, how attractions going to cope? And one of the key questions we ask is just a completely open question. People can respond in any way they like to this question. But we just ask, at the moment, how are you feeling about visiting attractions over the next few months? So as I said, they can say absolutely anything there. We've not prompted them with anything that's point. And I think the, the, the issues that are coming up here, first of all, on the positive side, is that COVID is being mentioned by less and less people. I think the assumption is that it's completely kind of not an issue anymore, but I wouldn't say it's done that. But back in June, we still had 15% of people at that point saying something to do with COVID was putting me off going to visitor attractions, which was partially explaining why we hadn't seen that bounce back to to pre-pandemic levels. That's now in the September wave come down to 9%. So it's, it's disappearing. Okay. That said, you know, you've still got one in 10 people who've still got some sort of concerns around COVID. And as I said, it's particularly older people, vulnerable people that are still saying that. Um, but then, so that's quite positive. But then the, on the other side, the financial concerns have gone up considerably. So again, back in June, we had about 15% of people mentioning some sort of financial concern as a barrier to why they wouldn't be visiting attractions mm-hmm. or would you know, make them think twice. But that's now gone up to 24, 25%, something like that. So okay. quite a significant increase. And again, it's, as you would expect, it's especially among those with lower incomes, but also families are, are increasingly expressing financial concerns. And this time around, we asked a specific question as well about um, whether there was any positive benefit of all the government support around energy bills. And actually, we're finding that it's probably not because any sort of positive benefit of government support is being negated by just the the still absolute rises in energy um, Mm. energy costs. So 
it's it's a difficult situation at the moment and we've now got around about half the country really feeling that they feel worse off than they did at the same point last year so clearly that's going to have an impact yeah i wonder if it i mean so so i'll give i can give you an example so i went to an attraction on monday i took my daughter met up with some friends um and went to paradise wildlife park for the day and i definitely thought more about what i was going to spend when i got there than i usually would um and i thought well I'm quite lucky. My daughter is a is a big eater. She's not fussy. She eats anything. But I went, do you know what? I'm going to just pack her a pack lunch. So she's got sandwiches, fruit, whatever. And I'll buy myself my lunch when I'm there. And that just saves just a tiny little bit of money. It, you know, and it's, it sounds silly. It's insignificant. But it was enough to make me in my head go, I feel a bit better about that. And I probably spent longer at the attraction as well. Because in my head, I was like, well, I've, you know, paid... I want to get my money's worth. Um, we'll go here and we'll go in the tumble tops place and we'll do the soft play. And I just, I really extended the time that I was at the attraction as well for the money that I paid for it. And it wasn't unreasonable at all. We had a great day. It's a brilliant, brilliant day out. But it did make me think about just small changes I wouldn't have thought about six months ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think you kind of picked up on secondary spend there. I think that is one thing that's going to be a challenge. And, and also uh memberships as well so we were a bit earlier in the year seeing people saying things like well i'll squeeze as much as i possibly can out of my existing memberships which is a good thing um makes you more likely to renew but i think now we've reached the stage where people are starting to do that a bit less because they're actually scared of any visit occasion because there is secondary spend associated with even a even a, even a visit occasion that is associated with a membership Right. Because you've got to travel to get there, you've got to, and then you've got to potentially yeah, have something to eat there or buy something in the shop. And I think the situation is now with some people that they're even even when they have a membership of some organisation, they're actually more reluctant to use it now, more than trying to squeeze as much as possible out of it. So I think wow. it's going to be a tough time for memberships over the next few months, definitely. So we've got again evidence from that piece of work that is saying. People are uh, less likely to renew and less likely to acquire new memberships over the next few months than they because of their personal financial situation. And it's all within that 50% of people who are feeling worse off, obviously. Which kind of, I guess on the positive side, um, what we're seeing is that, um, I guess if there were going to be a prediction is that at the, at the high end, at the high end limited supply type products that there's, there's virtually going to be no change there so if, if you've got lim- yeah, limited supply of something that's priced at a high level i think there is still going to be plenty of demands for, for that sort of thing and you kind of see it all the time really i mean I, I think things like the kind of christmas lights displays for example attractions i have a feeling they're still going to be okay and do well i mean i i, I try to go to there's one reasonably local to me at waterston and I, I don't know if it's completely sold out yet, but I know the slots that we wanted to try and book, we booked three or four weeks ago for it. So I think those sorts of events at the kind of higher price point end with limited supply should be okay in my view. Yeah, and I would I would agree with that again from personal experience of trying to book the Audley End miniature railway Christmas experience. All of the weekends are gone. You know, I I did manage to get a Friday thankfully 
more for me to be perfectly honest <laughs> I, yeah. I can't wait to go on it um but yeah that's that sold you know those those peak Saturdays and and, and weekends slots sold out with, within you know hours you know and they're they're all gone completely so yeah I we definitely agree with you on that so do you think that that then leads attractions to they're just going to have to try harder in terms of the experience that they're putting on so should they be looking at trying to offer things that are a bit more unique at a higher price point yeah i think yes definitely i think as well it's, it's important to point out that this isn't going to be kind of across the board so again there's there's a lot of evidence for again i, I guess this is all very intuitive but there's going to be a much higher impact negative impact on paid attractions and free attractions so there, again there's very strong evidence that people will be switching out from paid attractions to free attractions but then even within that within paid attractions it's perhaps starting to emphasize the this is going to be about a value message here and what what else can you do to add value to whatever ticket price is really so yeah and, and again so you know a, a third of people said they will visit paid attractions less than normal and only 13 percent said more whereas on the free attraction side you've got a third saying they will visit free attractions more than usual and only eight percent said less so and again that's all driven by those who feel worse off so yeah it's just it's, i think it's all about completely about that value message over the, this winter you need that reassuring communications around it and i think as well what's also come out of this is there's this assumption that the cost for visiting attractions will be rising at the same rate as everything else in the economy. Oh. So there are quite a few people saying things like, just assuming that yeah, visitor the cost of visiting attractions is going to be going up. So I think there is a really important communications message to, to put in there right. for the attractions to come across is that, you know, we are maybe holding our prices at 22 levels or, or whatever it is, or... Know, only increasing it by a small amount or add it, adding this, this extra value item in or whatever it is. So I think something that is related to value and price has to be the message this year, just to reassure people that actually we're not going up at the same price as energy and wheat and sunflower and all the rest of it. Actually, it's going to be fairly marginal, if anything, for visitor attractions. Which I thought it was quite one of the quite interesting things that came out of it. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I hadn't considered that. I mean, look, it's unfair to say that attractions won't be putting up their prices because their energy bills are going up just as ours are. And actually, their energy bills are going up more dramatically in ours because there's no currently no cap on businesses. So there isn't a reassurance piece to be done. But I think that has to be done quite tactically by the attraction because they can't come out and say, look, we're not putting our prices up. We're not doing this because they might have to because of the cost of living. So, OK, but that's um, that's something that I wasn't expecting that they just assumed that it would rise that rapidly yeah and coincidentally I read something somewhere recently in the trade press as well I've just I've done some research across other sectors as well and was seeing a very similar similar sort of scenario as well so actually when you think about it if you think if you average Joe public if, if inflation's at 10 percent your immediate thought is well everything's going up 10 percent right mm. so wh- why wouldn't it be you most members of the public wouldn't think about the nuances of what's going up and what isn't going up. So um, I think it's just something to, to bear in mind. Although, again, what, what I would say is that I'm of the view that attractions should try and hold their nerve in terms of pricing. And I suspect there won't be much merit in 
reducing prices or holding prices as they are just for the sake of it, because I don't think we're talking here about those those people who are financially squeezed. The odd pound or two lower admission price at the Vista attraction, I don't think it's going to make a huge amount of difference whether they did it or not, to be honest. So all you'll be doing is rewarding the people who would visit anyway. Um, so yeah. kind of wh wh why why would you do that? So I think it's it's holding your nerve and being confident that you offer a, a good value, worthwhile experience. Yeah, good advice, Steve. And that also backs up the last um, interview that we had with Simon Addison about being confident in what you're delivering and the price that you're charging yeah. for it. So yeah, yeah, really, really good advice. Okay, what else have you uh, what else have you discovered? I think that that. that they were probably the main points, really. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, as I said, it's going to be pretty tough for membership. So existing members are kind of less likely. We're now seeing they're less likely to renew than we were back in June, and they're less likely to to acquire new memberships as well. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, just just more reticent about using squeezing as much value out of existing memberships as well. Yeah. It's interesting, the membership one, because uh, my National Trust membership is up for renewal in January time. Um, we were very kindly um, gifted it for a wedding present last year. And I'm absolutely going to renew because for me, mm -hmm. that's been an it's such incredible value for money. And we were we were literally talking about it last night. We were like, well, it's fine. Like in general, we'll, we'll, we'll renew our membership. We'll make sure that we are not only using the brilliant, you know, National Trust parks that are around us, like Wimpole, um, Anglesey Abbey, et cetera, ICWA, but go further afield as well. So actually, if we're if we're going to use that membership, then we don't mind traveling a little bit further, even though that's going to cost us a bit more in petrol to go to that attraction, because you're then not paying the attraction fee on top of the travel costs as well. So, yeah, it's funny that that was... I'd never even considered not not renewing it. Yeah, and I, I'm exactly the same. Um, but and, and I guess let's be clear here. You know, I, I said 50% of the population are feeling worse off than they did at this point last year. But then 50% are feeling okay, the same or better. And I think that it was something like 15%. So we're actually feeling better off than last year, which I think kind of says something about where we're going as society. It's kind of being pulled apart even further, to be honest with you. So there is, you know, there are still significant proportions of people that are feeling fine about things and will renew their memberships or see them as a charitable donation. Mm -hmm. Steve, I want to ask you a little bit about pre-booking because um, we, we've, we, I mean, we've talked about this for years now, pre-booking. Obviously, it was kind of forced upon attractions um, during the pandemic and when they were allowed to open. I still don't know why anyone wouldn't pre-book in advance, but then I am an organised planner. I need to know that I've got my ticket and I'm going to get in. <laughs> I'm not going to have a wasted journey. Um, and obviously, for an operational side from uh, aspect from attractions, it's, it's a brilliant thing to be able to do. What's the kind of sentiment now um, from general public? Are they still happy with it? Are they um, starting to want to go back to the old days where things were just a little bit more flexible and a bit more kind of spontaneous? Yeah, well, I, th I think almost it's it's switching that around a little bit. I mean, I, I, I think obviously COVID was this fantastic opportunity to almost change the culture of the public to one where, as you said, it's it's why wouldn't you pre-book an attraction in the same way that you would pre-book lots of other things in society, like going to the theatre or going to a restaurant or whatever. So I certainly paid paid attractions. So it was a really good opportunity to change the, the, the culture. 
So I, th I think the main point for me is that attractions need to be proactive in encouraging encouraging that behaviour. So it's not something that will naturally come to to the public and public sentiment won't change unless attractions are proactive in changing it. So kind of, why would it really? So I, I think um, it's incumbent upon attractions to really kind of create that appetite for pre-booking. And I think to an extent we, we're beginning to get there, but I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of you know, what nudges can we can we put to the public to encourage them to pre-book. So I, I think things like online discounts that are notable or you know, switching it around premiums to walk-ups, depending on which way you want to look at it, <laughs> um, are kind of especially should be used more than they probably are at the moment. And, and things like you know dynamic pricing for advanced booking, for example. Again, I know you talked to Simon Simon Addison about dynamic pricing last week, but the more that that can be used, in particular for things like um, advanced booking, I think just uh, will encourage encourage pre-booking. And then gradually over a period of time, it then gets ingrained into the people's psyche. I'm going to an attraction, therefore I will pre-book. Um, so I think it's just one of those that I think the industry as a whole almost needs to come together and say, right, we're going to push pre-booking as, as much as we possibly can because we need to change the way that society thinks about booking attractions. You know, it, it's easy for me to sit here and say that and much more difficult to do, but I think that's that's what, what needs to be done because, yeah, as we've seen, there's, there's huge benefits in terms of creating that relationship with anybody as soon as you grab their email address. Um, and that, that investment or the, you know, the discounts you offer may well pay dividends in, in years to come because you've managed to keep that relationship going, which means you get more repeat visits, you get more top of mind, so you get more recommendation being spread around, etc. So I think it's a, it's a, a worthwhile investment. Brilliant. Yeah, good advice. I agree with every every single word that you've said, Steve. So um, thanks for back, back, thanks for backing up everything that I put online about it as well. <laughs> okay, that's all right. Well, to be honest, it helped me as well from on my on my visitor surveys. I now try and make sure that they are kind of online post visit surveys, which tend to help the more pre bookers that people have got. So um, it makes that research a lot more cost effective, should we say as well. Helping us all round, Steve. That's what I like. Sector collaboration and all that. <laughs> right, Steve, thank you for sharing your insights today. It's really appreciated. And I know that this will help a lot of people that are feeling a little bit anxious about what's going on and just not really sure what way, like how to approach things. So um, thank you very much. I always ask our guests to recommend a book that they love or something that's helped shape their career in some way. What have you got for us today? Okay, so... I've, I've read this book called Silt Road, Silt Road rather than Silk Road, by a guy called Charles Rangley Wilson or Rangley Wilson, not quite sure to be honest. And uh, it's quite nice, this, so be prepared. Okay. Um, it, it tells the it's the, tells the social history of High Wycombe, which is where I live, through the lens of the River Wye, which sort of runs through it, although most of it's been culverted and put under a, a shopping centre and a flyover these days. Yeah, it, it tells that story through the lens of a river. It tells a story about things like the, the mills on the river, the history of Wickham as a, a furniture and chair making town, which led to me actually be, being. So I'm now chair of the uh, Wickham Chair Museum, which is uh, rather ironic. But That's a, niche as well, isn't it? I love it's it. Incredibly niche. It's incredibly niche. And it also tells the story of, of, of uh, things like how trout became 
Um, so trout are a thing in New Zealand, apparently, and they are a thing in New Zealand because they were taken from the River Wye uh, and transported over thousands of miles to New Zealand many years ago. But um, the reason why I mention it is because I'm not originally from Wickham. I've lived here for about 15 years, but it really helped me kind of form this identity with the town because it's Wickham is a few miles outside London. It's very commuterable, which means that actually there's not many people live in Wickham who are originally from Wickham so I'm a big believer in getting kind of pride in your local area so you look after it better and make more of a contributor to the community so books like this help with that because it's really helped me to understand Wickham in more in more detail understand the social history and feel more proud of the place I live. Steve I love that! It's not really a recommendation to read that specific book it's more a kind of a, a plea to go and find out a bit more about your local area, read about the social history so that you feel more proud about the places you live in. And more connected to it as well. Uh, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve, connection. I think that's lovely. Um, it's amazing the stuff that you can earn on this podcast, isn't it? Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Who knew that Wickham... I had no idea that it was a big chair and furniture manufacturing place and, yeah. and that you'd got a chair museum as well. We, we do. And <laughs> yes, it's mentioned in Gavin and Stacey as well. Is it? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, I mean, and I'm an Essex girl, so that, that fits for me too. Well, so, James, Corden, James Corden's from High Wickham, so that's why he's mentioned in there. <laughs> gotcha. Right. Okay. Well, look, listeners, if you want to win Steve's book, and why wouldn't you, if you go over to our Twitter account and you retweet this episode announcement with the word, I want Steve's book, then we'll get you a copy of that book. We'll get you a copy of it and you could be in a, with a chance of winning it and then you can find out about High Wickham as well. <laughs> Thank you, Steve, it's been an education. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.